Section 4 of To the Christian Nobility of the German Nation by Martin Luther Translated by C. A. Buchheim This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Twenty-seven articles respecting the reformation of the Christian estate continued. Thirteen. Now we come to the great crowd that promises much and performs little. Be not angry, my good sirs, I mean well. I have to tell you this bitter and sweet truth. Let no more mendicant monasteries be built. God help us, there are too many as it is. Would to God they were all abolished, or at least made over to two or three orders. It has never done good, it will never do good, to go wandering about over the country. Therefore my advice is that ten, or as many as required, may be put together and made into one. Which one, sufficiently provided for, is not to beg? Oh, it is of much more importance to consider what is necessary for the salvation of the common people than what St. Francis, or St. Dominic, or St. Augustine, or any other man laid down, especially since things have not turned out as they expected. They should also be relieved from preaching and confession, unless specially required to do so by bishops, priests, the congregation, or other authority. For their preaching and confession has led to naught but mere hatred and envy between priests and monks, to the great offense and hindrance of the people, so that it well deserves to be put a stop to, since its place may be very well supplied. It does not look at all improbable that the Holy Roman See had its own reasons for encouraging all this crowd of monks. The Pope, perhaps, feared that priests and bishops, growing weary of his tyranny, might become too strong for him, and begin a reformation unendurable to his holiness. Besides this, one should also do away with the sections and the divisions in the same order, which, caused for little reason and kept up for less, oppose each other with unspeakable hatred and malice. The result being that the Christian faith, which is very well able to stand without their divisions, is lost on both sides, and that a true Christian life is sought and judged only by outward rules, works, and manners, from which arise only hypocrisy and the destruction of souls, as every one can see for himself. Moreover, the Pope should be forbidden to institute or to confirm the institution of such new orders. Nay, he should be commanded to abolish several and to lessen their number. For the faith of Christ, which alone is the important matter, and can stand without any particular order, incurs no little danger, lest men should be led away by these diverse works and manners, rather to live for such works and manners than to care for faith. And, unless there are wise prelates in the monasteries, who preach and urge faith rather than the rule of the order, it is inevitable that the order should be injurious and misleading to simple souls who have regard to works alone. Now, in our own time, all the prelates are dead that had faith and founded orders. Just as it was in old days, when the children of Israel, when their fathers were dead that had seen God's works and miracles, their children, out of ignorance of God's work and faith, soon began to set up idolatry and their own human works. In the same way, alas, these orders, not understanding God's works and faith, grievously labor and torment themselves by their own rules and laws, and yet never arrive at a true understanding of a spiritual and good life, as was foretold by the Apostle, saying of them, 
having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of what a true spiritual life is. 2 Timothy 3, 2-7 Better to have no convents where there is no truly spiritual prelate of understanding in the Christian faith to govern them. For such a prelate cannot but rule with injury and harm, and the greater the apparent holiness of his life in external works, the greater the harm. It would be, I think, necessary, especially in these perilous times, that foundations and convents should again be organized as they were in the time of the apostles, and a long time after, namely, when they were all free for every man to remain there as long as he wished. For what were they but Christian schools, in which the scriptures and Christian life were taught, and where folk were trained to govern and to preach, as we read that St. Agnes went to school, and as we see even now in some nunneries, as at Quidlinburg and other places. Truly all foundations and convents ought to be free in this way, that they may serve God of a free will, and not as slaves. But now they have been bound round with vows and turned into eternal prisons, so that these vows are regarded even more than the vows of baptism. But what fruit has come of this we daily see, hear, read, and learn more and more. I dare say that this, my counsel, will be thought very foolish, but I care not for this. I advise what I think best. Reject it who will. I know how these vows are kept, especially that of chastity, which is so general in all convents, and yet was not ordered by Christ, and is given to comparatively few to be able to keep it, as he says, and St. Paul also, Colossians 2.20. I wish all to be helped, and that Christian souls should not be held in bondage through customs and laws invented by men. 14. We also see how the priesthood is fallen, and how many a poor priest is encumbered with a woman and children, and burdened in his conscience, and no one does anything to help him, though he might very well be helped. Popes and bishops may let that be lost which is being lost, and that be destroyed which is being destroyed. I will save my conscience and open my mouth freely. Let it vex popes and bishops, or whoever it may be. Therefore I say, according to the ordinances of Christ and his apostles, every town should have a minister, as St. Paul plainly says, Titus 1, and this minister should not be forced to live without a lawful wife, but should be allowed to have one, as St. Paul writes, 1 Timothy 3, saying, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For with St. Paul a bishop and a presbyter are the same thing, as St. Jerome also confirms. But as for the bishops that we now have, of these the scriptures know nothing. They were instituted by the Christian congregations, so that one might rule over many ministers. Therefore we teach clearly, according to the Apostle, that every town should elect a pious, learned citizen from the congregation, and charge him with the office of minister. The congregation should support him, and he should be left at liberty to marry or not. He should have assistance, several priests and deacons, married or not, as they please, who should help him to govern the people and the congregation with sermons and the ministration of the sacraments, as is still the case in the Greek church. In these latter times, where there are so many persecutions and conflicts against heretics, there were, 
many holy fathers who voluntarily abstained from the marriage state that they might study more and might be ready at all times for death and conflict now the roman see has interfered of its own perversity and has made a general law by which priests are forbidden to marry this must have been at the instigation of the devil as was foretold by st paul first timothy four one and two and following saying that there shall come teachers giving heed to seducing spirits forbidding to marry and so forth this has been the cause of so much misery that it cannot be told and has given occasion to the greek church to separate from us and has caused infinite disunion sin shame and scandal like everything that the devil does or suggests now what are we to do my advice is to restore liberty and to leave every man free to marry or not to marry but if we did this we should have to introduce a very different rule and order for property the whole canon law would be overthrown and but few benefices would fall to rome i am afraid greed was a cause of this wretched unchaste chastity for the result of it was that every man wished to become a priest or to have his son brought up to the priesthood not with the intention of living in chastity for this could be done without the priestly state but to obtain this worldly support without labor or trouble contrary to god's command genesis three in the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat thy bread and they have given a color to this commandment as though their work was praying and reading the mass i am not here considering popes bishops canons clergy and monks who were not ordained by god they have laid burdens on themselves and they may bear them i speak of the office of parish priest which god ordained who must rule a congregation with sermons and the ministration of the sacraments and must live with them and manage their own worldly affairs these should have the liberty given them by a christian council to marry and to avoid danger and sin for as god has not bound them no one may bind them though he were an angel from heaven let alone the pope and whatever is contrary to this in the canon law is mere idle talk and invention my advice further is whoever henceforth is ordained priest he should in no wise take the vow of chastity but should protest to the bishop that he has no authority to demand this vow and that it is a devilish tyranny to demand it but if one is forced or wishes to say as some do so far as human frailty permits let every man interpret that phrase as a plain negative that is i do not promise chastity for human frailty does not allow men to live an unmarried life but only angelic fortitude and celestial virtue in this way he will have a clear conscience without any vow i offer no opinion one way or the other whether those who have at present no wife should marry or remain unmarried this must be settled by the general order of the church and by each man's discretion but i will not conceal my honest counsel nor withhold comfort from that unhappy crowd who now live in trouble with wife and children and remain in shame with a heavy conscience hearing their wife called a priest's harlot and the children bastards and this i say frankly by my fool's privilege there is many a poor priest free from blame in all other respects except that he has succumbed to human frailty and come to shame with a woman both minded in their hearts to live together always in conjugal fidelity if only they could do so with a good conscience though as it is they live in public shame i say 
these two are surely married before God. I say, moreover, that when two are so minded, and so come to live together, they should save their conscience. Let the man take the woman as his lawful wife, and live with her faithfully as her husband, without considering whether the Pope approve or not, or whether it is forbidden by canon law, or temporal. The salvation of your soul is of more importance than their tyrannous, arbitrary, wicked laws, which are not necessary for salvation, nor ordained by God. You should do as the children of Israel did, who stole from the Egyptians the wages they had earned, or as a servant steals his well-earned wages from a harsh master. In the same way do you also steal your wife and child from the Pope. Let him who has faith enough to dare this only follow me courageously. I will not mislead him. I may not have the Pope's authority, yet I have the authority of a Christian to help my neighbor and to warn him against his sins and dangers, and there is a good reason for doing so. A. It is not every priest that can live without a woman, not only on account of human frailty, but still more for his household. If, therefore, he takes a woman, and the Pope allows this, but will not let them marry, what is this but expecting a man and a woman to live together and not to fall, just as if one were to set fire to straw and command it should neither smoke nor burn? b. The Pope, having no authority for such a command, any more than to forbid a man to eat and drink, or to digest or to grow fat, no one is bound to obey it and the Pope is answerable for every sin against it, for all the souls that it has brought to destruction, and for the consciences that have been troubled and tormented by it. He has long deserved to be driven out of the world, so many poor souls he has strangled with this devil's rope, though I hope that God has shown many more mercy at their death than the Pope did in their life. No good has ever come, and can ever come, from the papacy and its laws. C. Even though the Pope's laws forbid it, still, after the married state has been entered, the Pope's laws are superseded, and are valid no longer. For God has commanded that no man shall put asunder husband and wife. And this commandment is far above the Pope's laws. And God's command must not be cancelled or neglected for the papal commands. It is true that mad lawyers have helped the Pope to invent impediments or hindrances to marriage, and thus troubled, divided, and perverted the married estate, destroying the commandments of God. What need I say further? In the whole body of the Pope's canon law there are not two lines that can instruct a pious Christian, and so many false and dangerous ones that it were better to treat it as waste paper. But if you object that this would give offence, and that one must first obtain the Pope's dispensation, I answer that if there is any offence in it, it is the fault of the See of Rome, which has made unjust and unholy laws. It is no offence to God and the Scriptures. Even where the Pope has power to grant dispensation for money by his covetous and tyrannical laws, every Christian has power to grant dispensation in the same matter for the sake of Christ and the salvation of souls. For Christ has freed us from all human laws, especially when they are opposed to God and the salvation of souls, as St. Paul teaches Galatians 5.1 and 1 Corinthians 8.9 and 10. 15. I must not forget the poor convents. 
The evil spirit who has troubled all estates of life by human laws and made them unendurable has taken possession of some abbots, abbesses, and prelates, and led them so to rule their brothers and sisters that they do but go soon to hell, and live a wretched life even upon earth, as is the case with all the devil's martyrs. For they have reserved in confession all, or at least some, deadly sins which are secret, and from these no brother may, on pain of excommunication, and on his obedience, absolve another. Now we do not always find angels everywhere, but men of flesh and blood, who would rather incur all excommunication and menace than confess their secret sins to a prelate, or the confessor appointed for them. Consequently they receive the sacrament with these sins on their conscience, by which they become irregular and suffer such misery. O blind shepherds! O foolish prelates! O ravenous wolves! Now I say that in cases where a sin is public and notorious, it is only right that the prelate alone should punish it, and such sins and no others he may reserve and accept for himself. Over private sins he has no authority, even though they may be the worst that can be committed or imagined. And if the prelate accepts these, he becomes a tyrant, and interferes with God's judgment. Accordingly, I advise these children, brothers and sisters, if your superiors will not allow you to confess your secret sins to whomsoever you will, then take them yourself, and confess them to your brother or sister, to whomsoever you will. Be absolved and comforted, and then go or do what you wish, or duty commands. Only believe firmly that you have been absolved, and nothing more is necessary. And let not their threats of excommunication or irregularity, or what not, trouble or disturb you. These only apply to public or notorious sins, if they are not confessed. You are not touched by them. How canst thou take upon thyself, thou blind prelate, to restrain private sins by thy threats? Give up what thou canst not keep publicly. Let God's judgment and mercy also have its place with thy inferiors. He has not given them into thy hands so completely as to have let them go out of his own. Nay, thou hast received the smaller portion. Consider thy statutes as nothing more than thy statutes, and do not make them equal to God's judgment in heaven. 16. It were also right to abolish annual festivals, processions, and masses for the dead, or at least to diminish their number. For we evidently see that they have become no better than a mockery, exciting the anger of God, and having no object but money-getting, eating, and drinking. How should it please God to hear the poor vigils and masses mumbled in this wretched way, neither read nor prayed? Even when they are properly read, it is not done freely for the love of God, but for the love of money, and as payment of a debt. Now it is impossible that anything should please God, or win anything from Him that is not done freely, out of love for Him. Therefore, as true Christians we ought to abolish or lessen a practice that we see is abused, and that angers God instead of appeasing Him. I should prefer, and it would be more agreeable to God's will, and far better for a foundation, church, or convent, to put all the yearly masses and vigils together into one mass, 
so that they would every year celebrate on one day a true vigil and mass with hearty sincerity, devotion, and faith, for all their benefactors. This would be better than their thousand upon thousand masses said every year, each for a particular benefactor, without devotion and faith. My dear fellow Christians, God cares not for much prayer, but for good prayer. Nay, he condemns long and frequent prayers, Matthew 6, 2 and following, saying, Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But it is the greed that cannot trust God, by which such practices are set up. It is afraid it will die of starvation. 17. One should also abolish certain punishments inflicted by the canon law, especially the interdict, which is doubtless the invention of the evil one. Is it not the mark of the devil to wish to better one's sin by more and worse sins? It is surely a greater sin to silence God's word and service than if we were to kill twenty popes at once, not to speak of a single priest or of keeping back the goods of the church. This is one of those gentle virtues which are learnt in the spiritual law, for the canon or spiritual law is so called because it comes from a spirit, not, however, from the Holy Spirit but from the evil spirit. Excommunication should not be used except where the scriptures command it, that is, against those that have not the right faith, or that live in open sin, and not in matters of temporal goods. But now the case has been inverted. Each man believes and lives as he pleases, especially those that plunder and disgrace others with excommunications. And all excommunications are now only in matters of worldly goods for which we have no one to thank but the holy canonical injustice. But of all this I have spoken previously in a sermon. The other punishments and penalties, suspension, irregularity, aggravation, re-aggravation, deposition, thundering, lightning, cursing, damning, and what not, all these should be buried ten fathoms deep in the earth, that their very name and memory may no longer live upon earth. The evil spirit who was set loose by the spiritual law has brought all this terrible plague and misery into the heavenly kingdom of the holy church, and has thereby brought about nothing but the harm and destruction of souls, that we may well apply it to the words of Christ, Matthew 23.13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. 18. One should abolish all saints' days, keeping only Sunday. But if it were desired to keep the festival of Our Lady and the greater saints, they should all be held on Sundays, or only in the morning with the Mass, the rest of the day being a working day. My reason is this. With our present abuses of drinking, gambling, idling, and all manner of sin, we vex God more on holy days than on other days. And the matter is just reversed. We have made holy days unholy, and working days holy, and do no service but great dishonor to God and his saints with all our holy days. There are some foolish prelates that think they have done a good deed if they establish a festival to St. Otilia or St. Barbara and the like, each in his own blind fashion, whilst he would be doing a much better work to turn a saint's day into a working day in honor of a saint. Besides these spiritual evils, these saints' days inflict bodily injury on the common man in two ways, 
he loses a day's work, and he spends more than usual. Besides weakening his body and making himself unfit for labor, as we see every day, and yet no one tries to improve it. One should not consider whether the Pope instituted these festivals, or whether we require his dispensation or permission. If anything is contrary to God's will and harmful to men in body and soul, not only has every community, council, or government authority to prevent and abolish such wrong without the knowledge or consent of Pope or Bishop, but it is their duty, as they value their soul's salvation, to prevent it, even though Pope and Bishop, that should be the first to do so, are unwilling to see it stopped. And first of all we should abolish church wakes, since they are nothing but taverns, fairs, and gaming-places, to the greater dishonor of God and the damnation of souls. It is no good to make a talk about their having had a good origin, and being good works. Did not God set aside his own law, that he had given forth out of heaven, when he saw that it was abused? And does he not now reverse every day what he has appointed, and destroy what he has made, on account of the same perverse misuse, as it is written in the eighteenth psalm, verse twenty-six, with the froward thou wilt show thyself froward? 19. The degrees of relationship in which marriage is forbidden must be altered, such as so-called spiritual relations, those, namely, between sponsors at baptism and their godchildren in the third and fourth degrees. And where the Pope at Rome can dispense in such matters for money and make shameful bargains, every priest should have the power of granting the same dispensations freely for the salvation of souls. Would to God that all those things that have to be bought at Rome for freedom from the golden noose of canon law might be given by any priest without payment, such as indulgences, letters of indulgences, letters of dispensation, mass letters, and all the other religious licenses and knaveries at Rome by which the poor people are deceived and robbed. For if the Pope has the power to sell for money his golden snares or canon nets, laws I should say, much more has a priest the power to cancel them, and to trample on them for God's sake. But if he has no such power, then the Pope can have no authority to sell them in his shameful fare. Besides this, fasts must be made optional, and every kind of food made free, as is commanded in the Gospels, Matthew 15.11. For whilst at Rome they laugh at fasts, they let us abroad eat oil which they would not think fit for greasing boots, and then sell us the liberty of eating butter and other things. Whereas the Apostle says that the Gospel has given us freedom in all matters, 1 Corinthians 10.25 and following. But they have caught us in their canon law, and have robbed us of this right, so that we have to buy it back from them. They have so terrified the consciences of the people, that one cannot preach this liberty without rousing the anger of the people, who think the eating of butter to be a worse sin than lying, swearing, and unchastity. We may make of it what we will. It is but the work of man, and no good can ever come of it. End of section 4